Hello and welcome to the Paranormalist Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kenny Dodson, and I am here with what I am calling the Professor, <laughs> Patty Wilson. Do you want to tell him why I'm saying that, Patty? Um, Given that this is going to be a lecture. <laughs> not going to be a lecture. Because I have spent a lifetime working on this particular subject. I started studying on this particular subject when I was about 16 years old. And I did 35 pages of notes for today's episode. And I've only got half of what I really wanted to tell down. The rest of it, I'm going to have to rely on memory. And I'm hoping that my memory will not falter for me because it is a very important episode. Frankly, I think it's probably one of the most important episodes we will ever do because it's a subject we don't touch on very well. When it is touched on in uh, the media, they they only do the the feel good side of it. They don't talk about the realities of it. They don't go into the biology of it, the psychology behind none of that. And we're going to take this topic we talked about before having to do topics in depth. This is one we will do in depth. What is it? This is um, near death and um, after death experiences. So. You may think you know what there are, you know, the the tunnel of light and your visit with your grandma and all that. And yes, that is part of it, but it is certainly not the entire picture. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay. Lead me. All right. Where, where are we going to go? What's 101? <laughs> What's 101? <laughs> well, I think the first thing we have to define is that there's two different phenomena going on. One of them is near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. Okay. So... Um, Near-death experiences or death experiences are people who have clinically died. That means that their heart has stopped, their breathing has stopped, and in some instances, brain function has stopped temporarily because of those things. When a person has their heart stopped, on average, and I'm just giving a rough mean here, about eight minutes is about as far as you're going to go. And then brain damage begins to occur as a general rule. Now, there are mitigating factors. Uh, temperatures and different things are mitigating factors. But there's a difference between that and out-of-body experiences. Out-of-body is a human being who is still alive, who may be unconscious, like in a coma. We've talked just about a couple stories of out-of-body experiences. And they have a different experience. They will sometimes talk about going into the tunnel of light or um, different things that have occurred to them. Although they usually get lumped together, they are definitely separate phenomena, and there's reasons why. So that's the first thing that, our, that I would like our listeners to know. So we're talking about near-death or death experiences. So these are people clinically dead who then are, are resuscitated via, you know, um, chemical means, um, mechanical means, um, things of that nature. So they have crossed the threshold of death. Lead on. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about what everybody thinks a near-death experience is. And this is usually how it goes. Um, they will say that, um, well, you know, something happened, some trauma happened. I remember this or that, and then I was gone. And then I burst into a, uh, an area of white light. I'm going to give an example. I'm going to use a gentleman whose name was Brian Miller. He's still alive as far as I know. And he... Um, He's been on Fox News. He's been on multiple different places. Now, um, Brian was a, uh, a truck driver. There was nothing um, any different about Brian, his life, his his 
health than everybody else, a little overweight, um, not really active because being a truck driver, you're sitting in a, in a car all the time, a vehicle all the time. And, um, he was, um, finishing up with a delivery of a rig and he helped unload it and he got in the car and then in the truck and he said, uh, he pulled down the roadways and he pulled over and he called his wife and he said, I think I'm having a heart attack. He had been having pressure and pain in his chest, shooting pains in his arm and his jaw. Classic symptoms. And he said, I'm calling 911. So he was just basically warning her that he was about to lose a lot of things. And he did. He called 911. The police came immediately to, to be with him until the ambulance got there a few moments later. They put him in the ambulance and they started taking him. And he was um, he had a um, heart arrhythmia. And very soon thereafter, he went into a full-blown um, cardiac arrest. Um, it was, uh, they, they used a defibrillator on him. They brought him back. Um, they, they, you know, lost him again a little while. And this is his story. Right before his, his, pass, his uh, passing over, a, fr a few weeks earlier, his mother-in-law had passed away. And he remembers a, a bright light, a tunnel of light, um, and he's in a field. It's a beautiful field. There's a path through the field. There's woods beyond it. And there's a log somewhere on this little trail. And beyond that, coming out of the woods, are two figures. And they walk toward him, and he begins to, like, they look familiar, but, and he starts watching them. And they come up to him, and he realizes it's his mother-in-law and his father-in-law, who are both dead, and they look like they did when they were in their 30s. So that's what kind of threw him. And his mother-in-law takes him by the arm and she says, oh, we're so glad to see you. But um, you can't stay. It's not your time yet. And he's like, what do I do? And she said, come on. And she took his arm and she started walking him back down the trail through the field. And then... He remembers great immense pain and he was back in the hospital. That is a classic story and no doubt that it's true. He came out of it a couple days later. Um, he finally broke his silence. This happened on like a Thursday. And then on Saturday, he said to his wife, I have to tell you something. And he told her first because it was her parents and, you know, and, um, then he came to find out that he had been clinically dead for over 45 minutes. Like they, they had called it. So he just and woke he, up by himself? Yes. Without he, being on anything? Like, yep. They had done everything they could do for him. They had um, worked through the whole process for as long as they could. They realized he was not coming back. He had... Um, a blood clot near his um, his artery um, in his heart, which is what they call the widow maker. Mm -hmm. And like only like, you know, only a, a small percentage of those who have that ever survive it. And um, they had stopped resuscitation on him and he was laying there still on the monitors, but gone and they were you know preparing paperwork and doing the stuff that they do when all of a sudden the monitors monitors started to spontaneously kick back in hmm. and they realized he was breathing again 
and his heart rate was going up again. And that's when they began to uh, work on him for the second time. So technically he should be dead. And with that length of time, he should be brain dead at the very least. Yeah. But he was neither. He has full memory, long-term and short-term. Nothing is gone. And, you know, I'm sure that there's a huge amount of psychology that goes into being quiet and trying to figure this out and, you know, what really happened to me and, oh, my gosh, I was dead. And that's got its own trauma to have to deal with, you know, because mortality is something we all deal with usually badly. Mm-hmm. And um, yet this is what happened. He, he, it was, you know, chronicled by the doctors. They freely admit it occurred. It occurred the way he said it occurred. They cannot explain what happened to him. And this is Brian's belief that he slipped into heaven or at the gates of heaven, if you will, and that he was met by loved ones who turned him back and said, it's not your time. You need to go back. And they led him back to where he ended up going back into his body. And now, that is a classic tale. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, did he like what's he gone on to do afterwards? Has he changed anything about his life or like was there really a purpose for him to come back or just it just plain wasn't his time? Well, I think it plain wasn't his time, first of all. Second of all, he did change what he was and who he was. He was a very quiet man who is now speaking out, you know, publicly about what had happened to him. And he talked about, um, you know, his wanting to spend more time with his family. And the one consistent message you will get across the, the whole gambit of positive experiences is that what we do, like you're never going to go to, according to these people, you're never going to go to heaven and God's going to say, well, I'm impressed you were a Supreme Court judge. He doesn't care. Right. What he does care about is how did you handle the situations in life where you were given an opportunity to positively impact another human being? So, you know, that time whenever you were seven and you, your sister who was five dropped her ice cream cone and you gave her yours. Yeah. That counts. That counts because you did it out of love. Right. You know, you didn't want to see your baby sister cry or whatever. It might seem like the stupidest things, but as I was going through all the stories that I've read, there are moments very much like that. There was one gentleman who said, um, he was a, we're going to talk about his case a little further on, but he was a um, college professor and an atheist. And when he passed away, the one of the very few things in his life that when he did his life review, which is an, if you go further into the process, they will talk about a life review. Mm. And he said, um, the one of the things that he knew he felt God approved of in his life was when his parents were fighting and he would put his arm around his little sister to comfort her. And that was something that he knew God was told him in his head, not that he physically spoke, but God told him in his head, that was good. Well done, son. So those are the things that count. Those moments that we probably blow off a thousand times because we're busy and what have you. And I'm as guilty as the next. I am. I get busy and I'm like, oh, guys, I'll do that later. But maybe that's the life lesson that we need to learn not to put that stuff off to later because the other things don't matter at the end of the day. 
Yeah. Um, you know, so that was, but that was, um, he's changed his life in those ways. He's much more, um, he's, he was always about family and he had a good marriage and everything, but he's much closer now and he makes more time for his family because of that. And he's speaking out about his experience. So that was a positive experience. It sounds um, like he, he's kind of like just a messenger for the message of heaven. Like heaven is real. This is, you know, Right. And he's speaking out about it and bringing the message to us. Maybe that's what his purpose was. Yeah, he felt compelled to talk. I mean, he did multiple interviews. Um, did he write a after book? After it happened. He, at the time, the interview I saw was on something called Ro- Rover TV or Rover, yeah, Rover Radio. And at the time, they asked him if he was writing a book. And he said, I don't know. People have been calling me about it. I'm not sure what I want to do yet. Well, then, so I'm not sure. Okay, so this isn't the guy that did the heaven is for real thing? No. Okay. Gotcha. No, this is not. And I need to tell you, there are, are millions, literally millions of people who have reported experiencing um, death experiences and life after death experiences. Um, and one of the things we're going to talk about throughout the next two episodes are going to be the fact that the only positive, only the positive ones ever get any media. And there may be some very, very compelling and frightening reasons why. Hmm. And they may actually go into the spiritual world to get those answers. Oh, okay. Because they may not be from this side of the veil, the answers to those questions. But let's talk about a few other people who um, had those normal near-death experiences and and um, how it impacted them. Because that's going to matter a lot when we get to the second part. Okay. I have a question okay, so about people sure. that have done it and they report... Uh, something else, but maybe I'll save that till you're you're done. Um, okay. That it that they report good experiences, but they didn't actually experience any sort of heaven or anything. Okay. So, but I think that'll be a good bridge between the two worlds. Uh, so go ahead with what you're okay. saying. So I want to talk to you a little bit about a lady by the name of um, Nancy Ryan's. Nancy wrote of did she did write a book um, and. Um, she was an atheist. She had been brought up in the Catholic Church and had kind of given up the whole religious thing because she just thought it was a bunch of hooey. One day she gets on her bicycle and she's going to run ride into town to pay some bills, just do some little shopping things and what have you. And she comes up to a stoplight and this woman is um, in an SUV is just barreling down on her. And she realizes at the last second that this woman's not going to stop. She's on her cell phone texting and she doesn't stop. She literally just plows right into this poor woman. And Nancy says that she flew up onto the hood of the car. And she said, I think the only time she realized I was there is when I hit the hood of the car. And she looked at me through the windshield and the fear in her eyes as she looked away from her phone. Oh, jeez. You know, and she said, I saw that. And then I rolled back down off and I was drugged under the SUV by the um you know, being propelled forward as fast as it was going and her and the V and the, and the, uh, bike just got drug underneath it. How is she not instantly dead? She was not instantly dead. And this happened in 2014. So this was not like a hundred years ago, you know? Um, so she said what, this is whenever she came, um, to her moment of what she calls a dual consciousness. 
On one hand, she was still alive. She was screaming. She could hear herself screaming. Mm -hmm. But she was about 50 to 75 feet away also, kind of up and at an angle, looking at the whole thing from a distance, watching what was happening. Is that and, did, did she say if she was feeling physical pain, the the body version of her was screaming. Right. Uh, but where she was most she consciously, was, did she feel anything or is that a way to split away from that agony? I think it was partially a way to split away. She did not feel anything. She recognized that the body part was feeling it. She oh, just sure. didn't physically feel it. And she could see the the ang the pain and the anguish and what have you from the body part of her but her essence lifted up and out she mm -hmm. called it dual consciousness so she ends up in the hospital as you can well imagine <laughs> and in a in a very very bad state and 3 days later they have to do an emergency surgery for her mm -hmm. it is during the surgery that she dies so she's on the table. They're operating her. She's already gone through all this other trauma and she dies. Oh, this is important. Did she stay in that dual consciousness from that no. point on? Okay. So she came back inside herself. Eventually. She just remembers. She just, rem she just knows that she lost sight of herself. So she thinks that she must have. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure for where her essence was during the surgery. It was in no. the body. Um, and I don't normally read things, but I will uh, read a couple quotes at some points in this particular two episodes because they're important and I don't want to screw them up. I don't think anyone will care. <laughs> um, so anyhow, she wakes up at the moment she dies. She wakes up and uh, she's on a hillside. And it's beautiful, like woods and field and what have you. And she's just standing there and she's puzzled and she's like, I think I might be dead. And at that moment, she hears this voice. She said, I didn't see it, but I heard it. And it said, you are my child and this is your home. And she was a little confused. And um, she kind of looked around and she was like, why am I here? What happened? Why did it happen to me? And then she saw a being of light is what she called it. And... The being said to her, you agreed to do this before you were born. And she said, I agreed to do what? And she said that the being kind of walked with her a ways and it showed her on a screen and she doesn't know how it happened, but it was just there that she had agreed to go through this trauma before she, her birth. And um, this is going to be an important story. And that's why I really wanted to make sure I get it right. So she um, she was kind of shocked by that because, you know, she had never thought about it that way. And then the being said, but you're not, it's not time for you to stay. That was part of the deal you made. You agreed to go back. You have things to do now. So she finds herself back in her body in a great deal of pain they um she is brought back um you know she's survives the surgery eventually and get and gets put back in her room and she tells this story and i'm going to ask that everybody suspend 
belief, disbelief, or assuming anything until the second half is over, because the second half is going to make the first half look totally different than it does right now. Um, so she, uh, she comes to, she waits a little while. She tells her family about what happened. Um, and she even tells them a little bit of stuff about what happened while she wasn't there. Just little bits and pieces, like a couple things. And they're, they're fascinated. She is completely convinced this is what she did. So much so that, like I said, she wrote a book and she, she talks about um, the love and the peace and, you know, all that stuff that she felt while she was there. So um, that is another case. And these cases are going to make a whole lot more sense. They're not just going to be stories later. I'll talk about another lady. Her name is Sherry Almay. And she was um, in her 20s. She got ill and um, she died. It's that simple. Um, She was dead of cardiac arrest um, for 90 minutes. She was in a hospital. She died in her, hus- her husband's arms. The monitors were on her. They had pulled everything. Um, it was Dora. It was just um, they rushed her out of there. They did open heart surgery. There was nothing. So the night, the the hour and a half includes the surgery. Yes. Okay. Um, that's why she was being monitored because they were trying to fight for her to come back, but she was again on the monitors the entire time. Um, she describes it as floating in a white space, feeling free. She talks about the life review. Now the life review is something that not everybody gets, but a lot of people do. And it's usually, um, as though it plays before you or it plays in your head or scenes from your life play in your head, almost as if to show you, these are the things that I was proud of you for. And these are the things that I was not. And she said she was shamed by the things, you know, that that she did or thought thought and stuff like that, that were not kind and nice and was struck by the the love and compassion that these things, these other things um, that she had done that were good brought to her the, the sense of uh, doing the right thing Um she also talks about having the, the life review look into through a window into prior lives, like as though she could see things she had done in other lives. Again, I want to ask for you to be patient. And she said, because there's a lot more to this story than that. You know how many I, questions right now I'm trying to wait no, to go ask? Ahead. You have to ask them. Go ahead. I will answer them. It's fine. Um, and she said that she noticed that that there was karma, if you will, that was the only word she could come up with for it. And she said that may not be the right word, but that there was something that becomes a theme, a common theme in your life. So if you're constantly struggling for um, love or you're struggling for financial success or something like that, that it can become the common theme that's passed through life after life after life with you. And that there's a way you can change that. She did not go into the way I assume that means I have to read her book, (laughs) but, um, 
she does talk about I mean she didn't say it like it's just she had an interview and she only had a few minutes to talk so but I'm assuming she would go into that more in her book what's her name uh, her name is Sherry Almay and what's her book name do you know um I have it written down here I can give it to you later okay um but anyhow she talked about this and she said um that you know again the peace the love the light the whole nine yards um and she came back feeling compelled that she needed to tell this story about how God is all about love and there's no punishment, there's no justice, there's just this karma-like recycling of this common theme in your life, your universe. Um, and I thought that was an interesting story. But, and I have to tell you, each and one of these stories I have found not just in a book, but I, I actually sat down and watched interviews with these people and what have you. So um, I listened to them tell it themselves. Right. It isn't like I just... But they're not the only ones that have experienced these things. So Because you could write it off as, oh, they, they're a good writer and they made it up. But if other people who aren't in the public eye have said these things too, then it seems more legit. And I have to tell you, um, they weren't in the public eye prior to that. Like their their experience kind of garnered them that attention. Right, but if they created yeah. it, it could have right. garnered them that attention. So, um, and and they sound. And I will say this: I do want to be fair about it. Um, they are um, very sincere. When you listen to them and you watch them, you can see the emotion on their faces. You truly believe they had an experience. I do not doubt for one moment they had an experience. Yeah. I'm just going to say that I may doubt the type of experience they had. Oh, okay. But not that they ever had one. Well, we always say on here to be, you know, skeptical. You know, if right. you if you dive deeper into it and go, oh, all these other people had it too. Okay, I can believe it now. You know, it's like, don't just take everybody's word for it, especially if they have a book that sells for money. Um, but they'd have to be a good actor to fake something like that if it seems and, and sincere. And I and I honestly don't even want to say that I don't even want to say that their books are maybe the reason that they did this, you know, yeah. because I think that maybe they're they all seem to feel compelled to tell their story in whatever medium they can. Like they are true believers who want to get their message out. Right. And the only and, way to do that's through publishers and yeah, telling all the story. That yeah, I yeah. mean, how else do you do is you just tell the story. And, they tell and how the can story. you afford to tour around the country giving speeches about what you experienced if you don't have the money backing you to do it as a job or whatever. So I get it. Yeah. I mean, and, and I don't know that they made a living out of it or anything like that. I think that they showed up at a few places and usually like TV shows pay your expenses. They don't necessarily pay you, but they pay your expenses to go talk to them. That's been, you know, mostly how it works. So for all the listeners who have thought I'm crazy, especially with the time episode and the synchronicities that I try to find and all that stuff, you're bringing me Christian heaven with with uh, karma and past lives. So, so these, far. So, right. I'm just saying this is, it's when I say I don't think one person's right and everybody's wrong. I think everybody's a little bit right. That This is and exactly think, what I'm talking about. Because just because they only had karma and past lives doesn't mean the Christian uh, heaven doesn't exist and vice versa. It doesn't mean karma doesn't exist. 
So this is interesting. You're going to see me go into another direction as well. Okay. Can I do one more question? Sure. All right ahead, honey. Uh, So whenever we we talk about um, you agreed to this before you were born. Mm-hmm. Um, well, does that play into one of some, but like between someone's past, her past lives? She, she lived, then died, then agreed to this and then was reborn. Is that what we're supposed to get out of this? That's what she believes. Because if that's not the case, then what you're what is being implied is that there are multiple there are more versions of heaven there's the heaven in which you are created and you interact with higher beings and live a life almost and then you're sent down to earth and put in a body and then you have like a post heaven where you live after that maybe they're all in the same heaven and they're mingling but you have people you're saying that you would have people that didn't live yet and people who have lived in the same place. So, well, there has always so if been a belief if you that... remove the past lives portion, if that's not the case, then that's weird that you're alive before you're alive. Okay, well, no, think about it this way. We are spiritual beings, correct? Yeah. This is just a um this is just a shell that we have as a persona, okay? Yes. We lived as a spiritual being before we ended up in the body. Right, but for how long? Okay. I mean, the, the implication with like Christian religion is that you're created and, and put into the body. Right. Not that you've like lived and then put in the body and then die again. I, I don't I mean, I don't know if that's what your church said, but like any Catholic church that I was in... I, I can't had, speak to the Catholic church, but I have always understood that we were spiritual beings yeah. in heaven and that we ended up in a body for us one time right. and that then we die and return back to being a spiritual being that that spirit is housed in this shell for the duration of our tenure on earth right i think a lot of people view it though as you're created to be put in that body whenever the body's ready you right. know what i mean like not not that you lived and interacted or agreed to anything right prior to because you think you'd remember that? Then what would be the point of pre-living? <laughs> okay, so look at it. It's not no. Look at it like you're looking at it from a humanistic ver- ideal that life here is like the beginning, the beginning of things, and this is like the be all and end all thing. Okay, right. But you would have existed. Your soul would have existed to be created elsewhere, I assume. Yes. But then you go whoop into the body. Like I, I didn't really ever entertain that you could be interacting prior like you i I figure it you're a baby spirit (laughs) you know you're you're a full you're a spirit right and and you had an existence and you did things and you and you existed and you had purpose prior to being put into the body this is a journey and then when that journey's over you leave the body and return back to spirit just the spirit leaves the body it's kind of like you're in a car you're riding and driving a car yeah Okay, and then eventually you get out of the car and you go home. Yeah, and that's what death is. Death is leaving that vehicle behind and going back home, and that doesn't end your existence. You're still a spiritual being that has things to do on that side, whatever they may be. Right. Okay. 
So, so I, I think that's the first, that's one of the f- many, one of f- many, many things that we, we have to kind of understand about this topic is that almost, almost unanimously, because I can't tell you I've read every story, um, is the knowledge that we are a spiritual being that existed and we had purpose. And this is just a purpose. This is just a journey that we take. And then we return back to spirit. We go home and we go on with whatever we're supposed to be doing on that side of things. Okay. So I let's, broke your brain already. No, let's talk about jerks then okay. if that's the, so if you if you live and you are in the spiritual realm mm-hmm. does that mean you develop into who you're going to be on earth because like if so like if you're if you're interacting and you have a consciousness and you basically we'll just call it live a life okay because yeah. what else would you call <laughs> you you live a pre-life like whatever but um like someone would have to be a develop into being a jerk before they come down here and turn into a jerk. Right? Like, are we assuming all these souls are good before they go to, to earth? Or are they like us where they have different personalities and such? I'm not assuming that they are all good. Just like I don't assume that everything in heaven was all good because if everything was always good in heaven, then we wouldn't have had the mutiny and Lucifer and the whole nine yards of all that. So, well, that wasn't about heaven, was it? That was about humans. That was no. about you're you're putting humans above us. Wasn't it, it more characters instead of place? No, it was about power. It was about who could Lucifer believed as the as the angel, the son of light, the morning star, that he could be as powerful as God, that he had the ability to run heaven, and that's what caused that mutiny. Was his? If you read the Bible, that tell it tells you clearly that it was about that. Well, I thought the people who followed Lucifer were outraged at God was placing the humans above the angels. No, that was um, that would have been the jinn who had that issue. If the jinn, if you believe in the jinn, they were the ones who refused to bow. The angels bowed to humans. Right, but then I thought they got sick of it and joined Lucifer. No, the reason they joined Lucifer is that they believed that he could rule heaven. That and he here's was... what I'm talking about. This It could be this particular version of the Bible that I have on my shelf that's paraphrased. Mm-hmm. It's not even word for word translation. It's supposed to be easier to understand and whatever. Right. Now, that's what that implies. If you, I'll tell you what, go back and go someplace, like go to a Goodwill. Yeah. Seriously. And buy a Bible that's 50 years old. They have them on the shelves stacked high because nobody wants them. Okay. And read that Bible. And then read the Bible you have at your house. The Bible, first of all, um, there are entire passages that are being left out of the Bible now because they're not politically correct. Um, They are re translating it but if you go back 
I don't care if you get a Dakes, which is a good study Bible. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you do the King James, which is a, a common everyday. And I don't and I don't try to bash the King James. Like I said, they had 37 words that mean something. So they had to pick some context for it. So they used the word the best they understood it as a translator. I really seriously doubt I could have done as well as these poor men who translated the Bible. So I <laughs> right. good. My mother spoke Greek and Aramaic, and she will tell would tell you. Um, and we had many conversations over this um, through my lifetime that to translate the Bible literally is almost an impossibility because they may have 37 different meanings for a word. Yeah. We'll and see how so, it can get, you know, you and I have not just in different interpretations, but two different, like how they lay it out. So, and, and the Catholic Bible is different than the Protestant Bible. Yeah. You just have the Maccabees and all of that. Right. So... I mean, at we always end up at, well, we know what happened, so it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> but well, but here's, here's, the, here's what I want you to know, take away from this, though. Yeah. This is something I find fascinating, is that um, no matter the interpretation, no matter the, the contexting, the Bible is one of the most amazing documents on the planet because it will speak to you where you're at today. Mm-hmm. If you read the same passage... 150 times it will mean something different to you as you progress through your life i remember um and um right after the fall of the soviet union um there were a lot of like churches and stuff going over there and trying to proselytize okay and there was this interview with this um gentleman who was a minister in hiding in russia and you know they literally tore some Bibles to pieces and they each took little tiny packets, you know, and they would try to work off of what they had because there were so few Bibles to pass around in that underground of, of Christianity mm-hmm. um, that they just sort of did the best they could. And, and whenever the, um, the minister started coming in, they gave this pastor a full Bible and he began to weep and they said, you know, it's okay. And they thought he was weeping in gratitude. And they, and he said, no, no, I thank you for the Bible. But I've had, it was something like 28 pages or something like that. It was like a very small amount. And he said, I've been teaching for almost 30 years and I've never made it through the 28 pages. I'll never make it through this. And I thought that was very important to note because the Bible is is a living document. It will speak to you where you're at. So as much as I don't like the fact they're leaving pieces out of the Bible, and I disagree with it intensely, and I think you really should go back and try to find an old Bible because you'll find it's a different book. Well, I think they should add this, the chapters that they just completely removed when they and were the, creating the Bible. And the, Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that got removed, and for whatever the reason, some political, I've, some religious, whatever. Yeah, I think that should all just go back in. But um, the fact of the matter is that the Bible itself will speak because it's a living document and it it will talk to your heart however it needs to. But that aside, um, you know, these are the stories that kind of take it forward. Um, And I wanted to talk about, um, there were two more stories I'd like to tell really quickly. And that's because they're really important. One of them is from a lady named Stephanie Arnold. She also wrote a book. Hers is called 37 Seconds. She was um, pregnant with her second child. And she knew she was going to die. This is kind of interesting because it's a little different. Most people will just have an accident or their heart quits or whatever. This woman was compelled 
to tell the doctor she was going to die during the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. She knew when she delivered her baby's boy she was going to die. So much so that even though everybody thought she was loopy, her husband was a scientist and he thought she was having mental issues. Um, you know how they pat the women on the head and say baby brain, that kind of stuff, you know. Oh yeah. He was he was doing that kind of crap. And she was so compelled, she called the head of the anesthesiology department at the hospital and she said, "I'm going to die." When you guys deliver the baby, I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. And mm. she told them exactly what was going to happen. She described the symptoms that were going to occur, everything. And she used terms that she shouldn't have known. And she knew things about it that she probably would never have found in a baby book, okay? She had so impressed this doctor that the, the doctor actually – after the conversation said, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm adding a crash cart and extra blood to her operating room. And sure enough, within a couple seconds of the baby being born, she crashed. She died. She was dead for 37 seconds, which doesn't sound like a long time to the rest of the universe. But in that 37 seconds, um, it changed her life. She, um, again, she was... She could hear um, the people talking. She knew that there was a nurse who literally jumped on her chest and began chest compressions. She knew that the anesthesiologist pushed a button for um, emergency services and that the doctor was crying out um, in her head, this can't be happening, this can't be happening, this can't be happening. Because remember, she had told everybody, her doctor, the anesthesiologist, everybody, and she could hear all this and she's watching her body being worked on. And then she suddenly um, sees her daughter who's a few rooms away. Um, she knows what her daughter's wearing. Her husband's just getting off of the plane. He had been on a trip and whenever this happened and he was trying to get to her, she knows what he's wearing. Um, all of this. And then she's in another place and she said, I saw a seven-year-old little boy, and he looked at me, and he, and he looked, something about him looked familiar to her, about his face, and she, it reminded her of her best friend. And the little boy said, can you tell my sister I miss the way she used to twirl my hair? And she's like, okay. And she said, I knew immediately it was, it had something to do with my best friend. Um. And then um, she's suddenly back in her body. She's, you know, in, in the hospital, in the hospital room. And for a, a few days, she doesn't say anything. This, she lost the baby boy, by the way. He, oh. he was born dead. Um, and, and with all of this dra trauma that she's lived through, um, she needs some counseling and she wants to, she goes through um, a type of counseling where they do um, regression therapy to let her go back and cope with what really happened. And it's during the regression therapy where she's under hypnosis that she begins to relate all of this other information. Exactly who was wearing what, what they said, quotes of what they said. And she was in multiple places at the same time because she was in the operating theater. She was with her daughter and she was watching her husband get off the plane all at once. And time no longer was linear for her. 
And you know, she said, um, the one thing that, that the doctors kept saying is you could not have seen this stuff because her eyes were taped shut. She was behind a curtain and most of what occurred happened beyond her ability to view, even if she were conscious. Hmm. So how it happened, what happened, she can't explain. She did eventually talk to her friend and her girlfriend, and she said to her girlfriend, um, I saw a little boy, and she explained what she saw and what he said. And the, her sister, her girlfriend broke into tears, and she said, oh, my God, when we were, I had a brother when we were little. He passed away, and I used to sit, and I would pat his hair and twirl his hair and talk to him when he was dying. And nobody knew that but her and this little boy. Hmm. Um, so that shocked her. Um, and she went back, she talked to the doctors, they talked about brain death, they talked about, you know, heart death, they talked about all of this. And the doctors actually gave her a quote that I would like to read. The doctor, her doctor said, I cannot give you a medical explanation for this. You need to go to the spiritual. That was her answer. Because she just couldn't define it. And I would like to talk about one more story about a little girl whose name is Zola. She was born um, very sick. And by the time she was four years old, she was regularly having seizures. Then, uh, and she was in a lot of pain. It basically, the disease, the easiest way to explain it was the way her mother explained it. She, most of us are born with um, super glue in our joints and stuff to hold us all together. Hers is bubble gum. So she's always hurt and she's always aching. And, mm. you know, so she's always in pain. When she was four, she had to have her tonsils taken out and she died during that time. And um, she never said anything. And then um, a couple months, maybe a year later, she said to her mother, when do I get to see God again? And her mom's like, what? And she said, yeah, when do I get to see God again? She said, I sat down next to Jesus and he gave me a hug and there were rainbows and God was there. When do I get to go visit with him again? And she didn't understand um, that None of this made sense. It just was just part of her experience. And she never, she didn't talk about it because it didn't make any, it didn't matter until she started missing God and she wanted to go see God again. And very, very quickly, because I know we're coming close to an hour, um, I want to tell one last story of a little boy who was eight years old. He was in a car accident. Uh, oh, his, hold, hold on. Did she say what God looked like to she her? She did not. She just said, she draws pictures. She draws pictures of bright light. Um, radiating out of a person. Which sounds like what the other lady saw, the karma lady saw. But um was like a she, bright light. She knew it was God and she knew it was Jesus and mm -hmm. she knew that you know, she would sit there and talk to him. Okay. So um so anyhow then I want to tell this one last story and then I'm gonna go on to the second half of this, which is gonna make this all make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. Um this little boy who's eight years old, he's in a car accident, his dad is dead from the accident. He's in a coma, and his mother is trying to cope the best she can. Eventually, he comes out of the coma, and 
one of the most unenviable tasks on the planet has to be telling a child that their parent is dead. So her mother, the mother realizes she has to break this to him. So she waits a few days and then she sits down and she says to him, honey, I bet you're wondering where daddy is. And he says, oh, no, I saw him when I was in heaven. And she's like, what? Yeah. And he named a, a friend of theirs who had passed away during the time the little boy was in a coma. So he would never have known that he was dead. Mm-hmm. And he said he was there and his son was there and his son had died years earlier, this friend's son. And he's chatting away and he said, daddy's OK now. Daddy's in heaven and he's fine. I, I talked to him. It's OK. And then he said to her. But I am sorry, mommy, I met the two babies that you had that died. That was sad. But they're OK now. Nobody had ever mentioned to him that she had had two miscarriages before she had him. A very common theme in these experiences is meeting children who died before they existed. So, and and quite often the person who um, dies, who meets them had no conscious knowledge that these children ever existed. But people will come back and say, while I was there, I met your your child who didn't make it. I met the baby that, that died, blah, blah, blah. So when I, and I'm trying to get into politics, but I do believe that we all have a soul, that all, that all of us have a soul. And this is one of the reasons I believe it, because these children haunt. We've talked about my experience. They come back when they're needed and they are met in heaven. All of which tells me they have existence. Well, did she ever say how old those two were with miscarriages? They were were in the first trimester. Okay. So beyond heart, beyond heartbeat. So, yeah. Okay. But um, they were just in the very first trimester. So very early on. But anyhow, he knew all of this. Um, and so I found that compelling. Um, I find the knowledge of things that are events that happen in a room when the person is clinically dead compelling. Um, I find the fact that they can travel through space and time compelling. Um, I think these are all really interesting, but I think that's only a small percentage of the coin. Well, okay. To bridge this gap. Go ahead. Uh, so what do you say about the people? I, I assume you've read, uh, that there are people that when they die, if they, and even if they stay dead for a little bit, they're in a, a place of just black and yes. all they feel is the most amazing sense of relief that you can possibly feel like, yeah, it's black. It's all black, but this is awesome. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what can you say about that? Where where were they? Because obviously they didn't go see heaven. Right. They, they I, just I don't, were I don't floating, they, they said, basically. Yeah, I, I don't know if they... Um, well, we're going to answer that question. I, I, I honestly think there's a different I answer. Thought, th- I thought it might lead in. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> okay, so if there is a hell... Okay, let's just start with the beginning. If there's a God and there's a, and a devil, 
there are inner angels and there are demons. Then there is a heaven and there is a hell. If we make that assertion and we start with those parameters, okay? Yeah. And almost every religion and even some philosophies believe that there is a heaven and a hell or a good and a bad and that you need to actively work toward one or the other. Okay? So if there is a heaven and there is a hell and there are angels and there are demons and there is a Satan and there is a God, why do we never hear experiences of people who go to hell? I mean, do you want my input or? <laughs> no, seriously. What do you think? I'm uh, going to tell you what I think. Well, we talked about this and it's because, uh, well, I'm annihilationist, as you know. So mm -hmm. they went to hell and didn't come back because they got destroyed. That's that's my simple answer. So none of the people who died and went to hell ever returned to tell their story. Is what you're saying? Yeah. I'm, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I just want to make sure I'm clear. No, no. Yeah. No, they they once they get down there. Poof. What if I tell you that that's not true and that there are a large portion of people who have those experiences who come back and then we're going to go another step? Well, then I would then I would say that also makes sense. Because so, they didn't get destroyed yet. Well, no, <laughs> so, because they, they came back. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so uh, I thought you were leading me to that there have never been any. Well, I'm, I'm saying that they don't, they don't talk about it. You yeah. never see it in the books. You never see it on the TV shows. None of that stuff, right? Right, okay. You I thought you meant there were none. Okay. That, so, it, it, I mean, if you were looking at these cases dispassionately from a scientific standpoint, you would see should see a cross-section. Yeah. Correct. You would anticipate a cross section. For sure. Yeah. Like they and got a glimpse would, and came back. Yeah. And then you would assume, I would assume that I would, well, I would start looking for things like um, cultural tells, mm -hmm. religious tells to see if this was psychological or physiological or spiritual. And I would look at all of those parameters and then many others as well. But that isn't how it's done. Okay. Yeah. Most of the time what happens is the person comes forward of their own volition, sometimes years after the event and says, this is what happened. But I want to start on a different path. Hello, Parapeeps. If you want to enjoy the rest of this very special two-part episode, along with um, other episodes, including an extra episode every week, please consider becoming a patron. And we would love to have you with us. You can go to patreon.com slash the paranormalist to join it's only five dollars a month and it helps to support the growth of this podcast we appreciate everything you do for us thank you mm -hmm.